Welcome to Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength, where we work toward loving God with everything that makes us human. Today we're going to be getting into a heavier topic and one that has been associated with a good deal of controversy over the centuries. We're going to be looking at the idea of whether or not God is in favor of the practice of slavery. Let's go. When it comes to challenges to Christianity or God or the Bible, few can be as difficult to deal with as slavery. It's pretty hard to find anyone nowadays who thinks that slavery was ever an acceptable practice. This is one of those things that you can feel pretty confident we all agree on. It would be very surprising to run into someone today who would openly claim, yeah, about that whole slavery thing. Too bad we had to do away with that. We should totally bring that back. If you do happen to run into someone who says something like that, it would be best to just end the conversation gracefully and walk away. And if they ever run for public office, don't vote for them. This one is going to be a bit longer than the previous topic, so I'd like to lay out how I'm going to approach this one before we get started. First, we'll look at a couple of passages that are often used to try to discredit the morality of God in the Bible. Then, we can review some of the responses that have been offered from some Christian scholars. After that, we'll take a look at a potential reason for why God might have allowed this sort of thing. Last, but certainly not least, we'll look at a more contemporary thought experiment to help illustrate an important concern. Before we get into whether or not God is good, let's take a peek at the passages that are most commonly used to argue that if God exists, he's not good, or that the Bible shouldn't be used as a moral authority. First, we have Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. And then we have Leviticus 25, 44 to 46. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born into your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers the people of Israel you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. If you've never read those passages before, or at least never really focused on them, but instead kind of breeze through them the way we do with those genealogies like in 1 Chronicles 8, they might bother you. Admittedly, these passages can be disturbing. There have been a number of highly credentialed, well-studied scholars who are far more intelligent and informed than I will ever be who have offered some form of rebuttal to this challenge. The counter-argument that I most commonly hear is generally centered around the idea that the slavery referred to in the Bible is different from the slavery experienced in the early American colonies and continuing into the first 80-ish years of the United States until the Civil War. We're often told that this is not the kind of slavery that Moses was referring to. It's often pointed out that the Hebrew word for slave, ebed, often means simply servant. In fact, the same word is used in a lot of other passages, like these. Genesis 18.3, Abraham said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Servant being Ebed. How about 1 Samuel 17.32? And David said to Saul, 
may no one's heart fail on account of him. Your servant, Ebed, will go and fight this Philistine. Or in Daniel 9.11, Indeed, all Israel has violated your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has gushed forth on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant, Ebed, of God, because we have sinned against him. Now, those don't seem so bad. These passages certainly don't seem to be talking about some horrible practice of owning another person as property. This actually almost seems akin to the people who, in more recent times, might say, at your service, when they're introduced to someone. The problem is, like many other words in ancient texts, the word ebed is contextual. It can refer to the simple idea of a servant, but it can also refer to the concept of slavery and the ownership of a person as property. The Exodus passage seems to indicate that a person can be owned as property, given the very end of the passage referring to the slave as his money. Or even in other translations, it actually says his property. This can be further supported by looking at the Leviticus 25 passage, which explicitly references the practice of buying slaves and leaving them as an inheritance to future generations. This makes it far more difficult to think of this form of slavery as being essentially different from what was done in the antebellum South. Coupled with the idea of beating a slave, it does seem to raise some concerns. Sometimes, another passage has been used to defend the honor of God and the authority of the Bible on this issue. This is a few verses earlier in Exodus 21 and points out that Israelites were to free their slaves in the seventh year. From verse 2, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. Now the problem with pointing out this verse is that this is only referring to a fellow Hebrew and not to foreigners. Again, look at Leviticus 25. You can see the distinction that it mentions leaving them as an inheritance to one's children to be property forever. So at this point, with all due respect to those who pose this defense, I think it's clear that while I'm sure there are some differences between the slavery of the Old Testament and the antebellum South, there's enough similarity to raise some concerns. This brings us to our next big question. Why would a good and loving God allow slavery? Is he maybe not quite so good and loving as Christians would like to believe? The answer is yes, he is. He is absolutely good and loving and just and righteous. I certainly don't want to imply that I think slavery is good or righteous. I think the practice is an abomination. I think men and women, all of whom have been made in the image of God, see Genesis 1.27, should never be held as the property of another. So, how could God be infinitely good and righteous if he doesn't seem to have an issue with something like slavery? Well, I think he does have an issue with slavery. I think God sees it, like you and I do, as a horrible thing. Well, then what's the deal with Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25? That's a fair question. To answer that question, I think we have to have an, ask another question. Do you think it's possible that God might allow behavior that he thinks is immoral? Let's take a look at another social institution about which God seems to have some very particular views. This comes from Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So here we see that God does not like the idea of divorce very much at all. However, he allows for it because of Israel's hardness of heart. He knew that if he outright prohibited divorce, they would have rebelled and done it anyway, except their version would have been even worse. Sometimes we have to remember that when God deals with people, he knows how flawed we are. If you're a parent, you know that you can't hold your child accountable for the same things when they're 18 months old that you can when they're 18 years old. You have to meet them where they are and gradually build a foundation of skills, abilities, morals, and all that. We will allow our younger children to do things that we would never allow an older child to do. When you have a two-year-old sitting in a high chair with food on the tray and they throw it on the floor, you don't punish them. You work with them over time and teach them that throwing food on the floor is not appropriate behavior. Things are a bit different with teens. You wouldn't allow a teenager to throw their food on the floor and just accept it. If they started doing that, there would be consequences. In fact, teenagers give us a much better analogy to what God was doing with Israel. There are some times that parents know if they try to prohibit certain behaviors, their teenager will find a way to do them anyway. So, they try to get creative and figure out a way to allow it, but with certain limitations. Ask any parent of a teenager who has tried to prevent them from listening to certain kinds of music. To me, that's an excellent parallel to what God was doing when it came to both divorce and slavery. He knows that both of those things violate his standard. But he also knows that if he were to be too rigid with prohibiting these things, his people would find a way to do them regardless. Look in the book of Judges sometime. Count how many times the people did what was right in their own eyes. Instead, what God does is start with the idea that we're going to do those things whether he wants us to or not. So, he puts some guardrails up in order to keep things from devolving into the same level of horror found in other nations. In the case of slavery, while he allowed it, he put some rules around it. Just keep reading in Exodus 21 a little further on, verses 26 to 27. And if someone strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free on account of the eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let the slave go free on account of the tooth. In other nations, these rules didn't exist. A slave was your property, in the same way that a farming tool was your property. You could do whatever you wanted, and there were no boundaries and no repercussions. But in Israel, there were some limitations to improve the situation for those in slavery, as well as to distinguish slavery in Israel from how things worked in other nations. Hopefully at this point, you're willing to admit that, okay, maybe God just allowed it because his people were so terrible they would have done it anyway. Maybe God didn't really condone slavery as much as he begrudgingly allows for it. 
But that still doesn't get him off the hook for the idea that you can beat a slave to within an inch of their life, and as long as they survive a couple days, you're in the clear. That's a valid challenge. Even if we recognize that God doesn't want slavery, but that he allowed it, plugging his nose as it were, we still have to address the concern with verse 21. To address that, let's do a thought experiment with a more contemporary situation and see if we can find some parity. Let's imagine that there are two men, Billy and Ike. Okay, I just watched Tombstone recently, so cut me some slack. Billy and Ike are at a local bar playing a game of pool. At some point during the game, the boys start to let their egos get the best of them, and they decide to start wagering some real money on the outcome of the game. With money now on the line, tensions get a little higher. Eventually, Billy accuses Ike of cheating, and the two of them get into a brawl right there in the bar. Fists are flying, lips are bleeding, and both Billy and Ike are going to have more than a few bruises when they wake up in the morning. If the situation doesn't escalate beyond some bumps and bruises, all that really happens is the barkeep and maybe a few other patrons end up breaking up the fight, and Billy and Ike are both sent home to cool off. There were no charges, the law didn't get involved, nobody was arrested. This is essentially what it means when it says, he is not to be avenged. All it means is that there are no legal or civil actions being taken against him. Now, if either Billy or Ike had broken a pool cue in half and stabbed the other with the sharp end, and someone got killed or even ended up in the hospital, this would turn out very differently. In that case, arrests and trials and sentencing would likely follow. The offended party would be due some sort of retribution. He shall be avenged. In our story of Billy and Ike, the fight was wrong. Someone did something that was immoral. But if everyone was able to walk away with nothing more than some bruises, there would be nobody pressing charges. Nobody would be getting arrested. No punishment by the authorities would be given. This is similar to the situation in verse 21. If a man beats a slave to death, there will be legal action, as he's taken the life of a person who was created in the image of God. Remember, before God put these rules in place, there were no repercussions if a slave was killed. But even if the slave isn't killed, the passage doesn't say, it's all good, everything's okay. All it says is there will be no legal action brought against the slave owner. Now you couple that with the fact that a few verses later we see that if you so much as knock out a tooth, your slave goes free. And we have another guardrail in place that didn't exist in the rest of the world at that time. Now you could still argue that there was an issue with the power dynamic involved, and that's a completely different issue. I don't want to get into that rabbit trail. Maybe we can get into that sometime in the future. For now, I just want to point out that while God may despise the practice of slavery, he allowed for it, but with some rules around it, to provide at least some level of protection to slaves in Israel that didn't exist anywhere else. It wasn't perfect, it didn't meet God's standard, but at least it was a step in the right direction, even if there was still a long way to go. Okay, we've covered a lot of stuff, so let's just kind of wrap things up and summarize what we've gone over here. So, many of the defenses of the biblical concepts of slavery argue that it's not like that pre-Civil War Southern slavery that we think about today. However, when you look at the passages in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25, we can see that any differences do not seem to refute the challenge with respect to whether or not Biblical slavery was just as immoral as the slavery we think about today. 
When we look to see if God could have any sort of justification for how he handled slavery in the Old Testament, we found that when it comes to divorce, for example, that wasn't what God wanted, but he relented to the, to the degree that he allowed it based on the hardness of people's hearts in Israel. Finally, when it came to concern about like physical violence against slaves and things like that, we saw that God put some limitations in place that didn't exist in other nations. He put rules in place to prevent slaves from being killed without consequence. He also put rules in place to ensure that if a slave were even physically injured, like getting a tooth knocked out, they were, they were to go free. So we can see that with all this, what God allowed was not at all his ideal situation, but he did put some limitations on Israel so that this institution of slavery could at least be at some point or at some level an improvement over what other nations were doing. He met them where they were and brought them at least a step closer to where he ultimately wanted them to be. I hope this was helpful and thought-provoking for you. Please feel free to leave me any feedback you may have, respectfully, of course. Also, I'd like to ask you a quick favor. Since this project is so extremely brand new, I need your help to get more eyeballs on it. By sharing feedback or linking back here, it'll help get the word out. And nothing works better than sharing it with everyone you know. You can also subscribe so that you're the first one to get any new content. So stop by the website regularly since I'll be adding more resources and you don't want to miss that. And you'll find a link to the website in the notes. Thanks again, and I look forward to sharing the next exciting topic with you.